Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today, Kate Marnie reflects on her highlights from Tokyo 2020, the Games touted as the most gender-equal Olympics in history, where she worked supporting the Australian team in their most successful Games ever. Kate and I delight in and celebrate the achievements and tireless advocacy of women athletes, and we use this celebration as a lead-in to a broader discussion about how clinicians can support women athletes to perform at their best, and we fiercely make the case for better pathways for clinicians in sports medicine and rehabilitation so that women are supported to ascend to the senior leadership and decision-making positions in our profession. It's that old adage, you can't be what you can't see. Kate is an Australian physiotherapist with over 15 years experience in elite sport. She's worked on the WTA tour and she was the team physiotherapist with the Australian women's cricket team, the Southern Stars. Kate's now the head of performance health with the New South Wales Institute of Sport in Australia and she's one of the 16 Women Strong Australian Institute of Sport Talent Program, which is a program focused on advancing the professional development of women in sport across science technology, engineering, and medicine. Kate, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Today, we're talking about how clinicians, coaches, athletes, sports federations, and other people in this kind of general sporting sphere can work together to protect the health of women athletes. So how do we best protect the health of women athletes and support them to perform at their best. And we'll get into the work that you're doing in this area shortly. But first, as we record this, you're rounding the bend, you're into the second week, maybe we can call it the final straight of your quarantine period after returning to Australia from Tokyo, working with the Australian team as COVID liaison officer. And it would be remiss of me, I think, not to ask you about what the experience of the Tokyo Olympics on the ground was like. So we've just concluded what were touted as the most gender equal Olympic Games ever. So I'm really keen to know what your highlights were. First of all, it's fantastic. I think for Tokyo to get that Games off the ground was just a huge achievement from an Australian perspective for us to get our team there and back without any COVID cases um, and have everyone come home safe to their families and their friends was just a huge achievement. It was obviously a very different Games. Amongst all that, I think what was absolutely fantastic is COVID took a back seat. And I think a lot of people, you know, really immersed themselves in the sport. There was just some fantastic highlights. My personal favorite was Jess Fox winning in the C1 canoe slalom. And she was ranked number one and she's been ranked number one for um, a long time, really dominated the sport. And it was her third Olympics. And it was just such an emotional victory for her and her family and the whole Australian team. She's such a great ambassador, I think, for athletes and how she conducts herself the approach she takes to both her performance and um, yeah, and how she kind of brings people together with sport. And so it was just fantastic to see her win. That was definitely one of my highlights as well. And I think we should also mention that Jess Fox was instrumental in the push to get the C1 event, so the canoe slalom as opposed to the kayak slalom, into the Olympics for women for the first time ever. So as we're talking about gender equal games, it was a really important achievement, I think. So congratulations to her. And of course, lots of pressure when you are one of the driving forces behind getting that event into the Olympics. Yeah, absolutely. 
My other highlight, which is a bit kind of left field, is the skateboarding. And I'd done a bit of work with some of our skateboarders prior to them leaving. But I just love the spirit, that particularly in the um, women's park final. And they're so young, but the spirit they just brought to their sport of just trying to like put out the best kind of performance possible, but then celebrating each other's performances. Like they were genuinely happy for each other and who, who won and who came second. And it was just, I thought they added something really different to the games and brought us back to why we all love sport, which is like you're trying to put your best out there. And sometimes you have your day and sometimes you don't, but you can still celebrate other people's achievements. Yeah, and I think people will probably remember something a bit similar with the men's high jump as well, where the where they shared the gold medal. So that was a really nice show of sporting or sportsmanship. I do have to put in a special mention, two special mentions actually, two highlights of mine. One was Anna Kiesenhofer winning the women's cycling road race. She doesn't have a trade team. She is a PhD in maths. She works as a, a researcher, I believe, and So her full-time job is outside of the sport. She's trained herself. She did all of the heat training uh, herself. She broke away, was in the breakaway for the whole race from the get-go and managed to hold off just an amazingly quality field of female cyclists. And it was such a brutal course for any of the cycling events. So that was that was a pretty special highlight for me. And the other one, I think, was Alison Felix in her final games, running so well in the women's in the 400 flat bronze medal and four by four relay for the for the gold was pretty special. Yeah, she's and she's also been an amazing ambassador for gender equity. I think she really set up the standard of what we should expect from companies working with female athletes. Yeah, I think absolutely. Alison Felix, hats off to her for her campaigning and ongoing work in this area. And I've seen her interviewed subsequent to withdrawing from her contract from Nike and also now in intervening years after having her first baby. She's still campaigning and still a really strong voice in the push for women to combine family and and performing well in this sport. So I think it's that old adage of you can't be what you can't see. So having someone like Alison Felix paving the way, and there are others, there are other women athletes who have, have lived this tough, tough road. I mean, she's come back and performed right from having a baby. So there's, she's just, they just prove that, you know, you can do both. Now, you've worked in Grand Slams in tennis and you've worked at Cricket World Cups and so you've really travelled the world supporting female athletes who compete at the very top level, the pinnacle of their sports, in different sports. What was different about working in the biggest sporting event in the world? Yeah, I mean, the Olympics is like no other, isn't it? I've enjoyed all my, um, I mean, every big sporting event has a buzz about it and, you know, whether at the Wimbledon final or Roland Garros or the Cricket World Cup, I think, there's something pretty fantastic and pretty, if you're a sports lover, there's something pretty amazing and pretty privileged about being there. I think particularly in a work capacity, you kind of pinch yourself and think, how did I end up here? The Olympics, just because there's so many different sports and nations and it's truly, truly global, the buzz that just goes around the village, I mean, I was a bit blown away. I've been to multi-sport like World Junior Games and big events like that, but I, yeah, it was my first Olympics. It's the amount of medals, I guess, on offer and the amount of kind of performances to be in awe of. So it's not like kind of just one thing and then a team gets knocked out or, you know, the draw size gets smaller. It just seems to roll on for the whole two weeks and every day there's something really exciting happening. It's also the first big sporting event I've ever done where I haven't been kind of at the coalface of the physio. So I've always been with, as like the team physio for cricket or for, um, you know, at the Grand Slams with the WTA. 
Um, and in this role, I was the COVID liaison role. So I was kind of in a more healthcare role trying to make sure that we kept our Australian team safe, met the immigration requirements, like kind of an administrative kind of role getting us there, and then making sure that we made really good decisions to keep our Australian athletes and staff as safe as possible and make sure we got home all in one piece without any cases of COVID. So it was also a really different game to me being on the, like I was on the AOC leadership team and just trying to look at it as a whole, how, how can we allow the athletes to focus on performance and really put this COVID thing to the side, but still meet every requirement of TOCOG and the IOC and make sure we are enforcing things that keep our team safe. Whenever I speak to folks who either go to big sporting events like Olympics or who are involved in as a team physio, overwhelmingly the challenge is that you are just on all of the time. It's incredibly long days. You're really busy. You're working incredibly hard. So I imagine that for you, it was less sort of focused on one team or one individual athlete or group of athletes. And you've got that bigger picture, but it's just as busy definitely just as busy like our days were starting sometimes our first phone call from Tokot could be as early as 6am so it's results of things so definitely as busy and as long days but I think you can because there's a certain admin component to it you can control your own day a little bit and so you can think oh there's a race on it you know 11 15 mm McEwen's racing I'm gonna stop and watch it often you're on and you're trying to make sure you see the injury or you make sure that person's ready to compete and someone else is competing while you're treating and so you don't get to see it all. I think most of us who work in sports are sports lovers as well as wanting to help athletes perform and and recover from injuries and stay healthy. So having that aspect of it is, is a nice aspect too. Now, let's move on to talk a little bit about the specific issues around women in sport and equity diversity and inclusion and and how that relates to our role as health professionals and and sports health professionals. What do you see that having gender equality and equity means in sport? First, it's a really good question because I think I, I really like this quote that I came across a while ago and it's Verna Myers and she's saying diversity is being invited to the party. And I feel like females in sport, we've been invited to the party. They're saying we should sit on boards. We need more female coaches. We need to have, you know, IOC had for the first time almost gender equity across um, females opportunity to participate in sport but then I think there's a second step to it which is inclusion and that's being asked to dance and genuinely being asked for our opinions genuinely being asked to for our experiences to shape where sport goes and how it's structured in the future and how it's set up and I think we have a little bit to go with the the second part of it so I think we're at the stage where yet we're being invited to the table and people are making the right noises and trying to get females involved from board level down but if you look at it the stats still show that we're not equally represented so still particularly at the higher levels we're not equally represented and then I think that even goes all the way through down to the clinician level like in Australia in our headquarters staff we had equal number of male and female physios um, and sports medicine staff but working actually with sports so who the sports bring as their physios we actually had only 25% of our female our females compared to males working with those sports and I think we're obviously missing something there because we're either not creating the pathway or we're not interviewing them for the roles or we're not there's something missing because we know we're getting females into the profession and we have this big base of females but when it gets to the real pinnacle they're still struggling to get through the levels and I can guarantee it's not because of talent or it's not it's not because of ability it's likely systemic failures along the way where we actually don't give opportunity equal opportunity to to both genders so gender equity is one thing so being asked actually having that it's have equal opportunity is one thing but you've also got to have all the systems behind it sport is still dominated by males. 
Yeah, and I think particularly in the decision-making roles, which is what you alluded to there. And if we bring this back to our sphere of as health professionals, as physiotherapists, as sport rehab clinicians or sports medicine professionals and sports medicine team members. To me, this is a really important issue because, again, it comes back to the you can't be what you can't see. So if we're getting a lot of physio, let's take physio as an example because you and I are both trained as physios. We see lots of women coming into the profession, but when we look at the top of the profession, who are, who's in the decision-making roles, and I see this in academia, and it's certainly something that as a journal we're trying to actively work on. As a society, I think this is a really important challenge for us all to think about and to change and work together to change. From your perspective, Kate, and having worked in this area for a while, both as a clinician and, and also in your leadership roles, why do you think this is important and, and who do you see as benefiting? In terms of who benefits, at the end of the day, everybody benefits, males and females. And I think that's something that's sometimes lost. People think, oh, we're creating quotas so females can be there. Actually, no, everybody benefits because it's been proven if you've got gender equity at the decision-making levels, the sports make better decisions, therefore they make more money, and therefore that trickles down into both male and female sport more people will be engaged in sport. If they can see other females involved in sport or other males, like someone like them involved in sport and there's equity, um, more people are willing to be engaged in sport. And this is not just to participate in sport, but this is at administrative levels, coaching, clinicians like we are. Sometimes you need to see, like you were saying, you can't be what you can't see. I really do believe that you need to be able to see a bit of a pathway for yourself to be inspired by it, to want to be involved. Not only do we need that kind of pathway so people can see what they want to be and actually like visualize a pathway for themselves into those senior leadership roles but then I think on the business side of it it just makes more sense right you've got bigger fan bases if you've got male and females both wanting to watch male and female sport there's more sponsorship money coming through the pathways become better for um, male and female athletes coming through those younger pathways and then if you get increased participation well that health benefits the whole of society so I think it stems a lot further than actually just kind of saying it should be there because it needs to be equal. We're talking here specifically about gender equity and gender equality, but these principles apply if we're talking about diversity and inclusion across all aspects of life. So we could be talking about anti-racism in sport. We could be talking about opportunities for LGBTQI plus folks. We could be talking about athletes who live with a disability. So there's there's a lot of diversity and strength in diversity in our community, we can figure out ways of including people, then we we all win. The big thing is everyone has a different lived experience. So I think if you don't bring people in with different lived experiences and to get really specific about how we do make better pathways for our female athletes um, where they haven't existed in the past. And I think this also has implications for our health care delivery and our, our delivery of, of sports medicine and sports rehab as well. So let's get into that. And I've had the privilege of knowing you for a little while now, and, and I know that you're really invested in supporting women athletes, female athletes to live a healthy life in sport, not only as they're performing, but also later on in their careers. And I also am aware that you've seen firsthand these challenges and the discrepancies in resources and access to healthcare in some cases between the men's side of sport and the women's side of sport. Think of scenarios where we've seen, you know, the local women's team uh, are asking for a, a PT or a physio to come and work with them during the, to cover their training during the week, but that position's unpaid, whereas the men's team 
the position is paid. So there's all sorts of issues going on here, both the clinicians developing our careers, but also in the provision of healthcare and performance support for athletes. So what do you see as the key challenges that are facing athletes, clinicians and coaches? Let's kind of put those three together. What are the key challenges that you see facing them when it comes to supporting female athletes to train and then perform at their best? So generally, athletes, clinicians and coaches all have access to less funding. And as soon as you have less funding, you have less access to things like medical and performance support services. You sometimes have less access to facilities, which is a a really big um, issue for a lot of female teams because then they can't get the training at the time they need to get training or they aren't able to train as much as, say, their male counterparts. Um, And as soon as you have less hours of training, we all know that there's a skill development component. And so um, the skill development perhaps isn't as high. But yet we're still putting these athletes, particularly with these new these leagues in their infancies, they're already on TV. So they're already expected to perform at this high level, but without this base that we perhaps give our male counterparts and the male sports, um, they have better pathways. And often they don't get to that TV and that high level where they're being scrutinized without having this pathway through. So I think for athletes, one of the big challenges is balancing their lives, right? So they've got to work as well as do all the training, as well as do all the injury prevention or, you know, injury risk reduction, whatever you want to call it, make sure they're ready to go and their skill development and try and fit that all in. For coaches, I think there's a whole nother challenge there because what we're seeing, and I mean, I think we've seen this sometimes in the Australian leagues, is as soon as there's money, the money does come into those coaching positions, suddenly a lot of coaches are putting their hands up who haven't necessarily worked with female sport, but they're getting the job. I think for coaches, part of the challenge is also making sure they can get the experience, they can put their hands up for those jobs. And also the jobs are awarded on being able to coach female athletes, which I think if you speak to most coaches, I remember speaking to the cricket coaches, they felt it was very different than coaching male athletes. So I also think there's a specificity of skill set that sometimes doesn't get recognised. And then for our clinicians, the biggest problem at the moment is they're being asked to do a lot, like you alluded to, a lot of work and either unpaid or at a very reduced salary. But the position descriptions are extensive. They're responsible for a lot without the mentoring and support around them. And then often that leads to these clinicians thinking, well, okay, I'll just go and work in male sport because I can get paid to do it. And you lose these clinicians who do have a passion for working in female sport into um, male sporting leagues. And you can see why. It's it's just more attractive in um, in terms of remuneration conditions. They have more support around them. And so I think we also have a bit of a um, challenge to keep talented clinicians working in the female space and feeling supported and feeling like they've got um, these networks around them to really help them be the best they can and and be really good advocates for female athletes and their health and performance. Let me ask you a little bit about that. And I'm I'm keen to hear what you would suggest because you've been in this scenario. You have worked as a as a clinician, as I said, at the top level of multiple sports for over a, a substantial period of time. What would your suggestions be to younger clinicians who are coming through now who are thinking, yeah, I, I really, I do want to work in, in women's sport, in female sport. How can they get that support that they need? What sorts of mentoring opportunities are available? How do you kind of find yourself in a scenario where you are not burning out, where you're supported and where you can also deliver your best as a clinician? What would your suggestions, your top tips be to some of our younger clinicians who are listening and and thinking that they might like to pursue a career in women's sport? Yeah, so look, firstly, I think people need, well, everybody needs to ask for what they're worth. So I think there's never, I I used to be very shy about it. 
And as I've got older, I've got more inclined to look at a job description and say, for that, for those hours, that's not that's not going to marry. Can we either look at the job description and see what I actually can do and what's realistic? And then let's look at um, how much I'm paid for that. I think the unpaid roles are a really tricky one. I, when I, early in my career, I did some taping and things before I was qualified for free. And I think you can learn from some really great clinicians just going down to the local club and doing things like that. And I think before you're qualified, it's a really good way to get some hands-on experience without actually, um, you know, with having a mentor there and, and you kind of learn a little bit on the job. I think once you're qualified, I'm actually really anti any jobs that have zero remuneration. I think it devalues our profession and I actually I wouldn't encourage people to take them. And that's my personal view and other people um, perhaps have different views on that and that's okay. That's my personal view is they will value you as much as you value yourself. So even if it's a small amount you get paid for it, you know, it's an honorarium, that is better than nothing. But I also encourage people to have the conversation because I know a number of times in my career with my first job with Cricket Australia, it was actually a part-time role and it was a touring role. And I said, I wouldn't do it part-time because it wasn't, it just wasn't going to work because what was I going to do in between the tours? There was too many tours. Uh, when I came home, I needed access to the athletes to make sure I did do good injury risk reduction programs. And I kept in touch with them and we set things up for the next tour and I was listened to. And I think you, it takes, I understand it takes probably some experience to have those conversations, but I would encourage young clinicians to, you know, sit down with the administrator, offer to go for coffee and say, I'd really love to work with you. This is, I think this is a bit unrealistic. How can we make this work for both of us? In terms of mentorship, I think there are so many fabulous clinicians who work with female athletes who are really open to helping other people. I know myself when people reach out, I, re- I make every effort and I generally always get back to them with any help that I can and try and encourage people and help them. And, um, you know, I've got a number of people I meet up with on a regular basis. I think clinicians generally want to help each other. Um, people generally want to help each other. So, not being afraid also to ask for help when you need it, if you're unsure. And even at this stage of my career, I definitely don't know everything. And I ask people all the time. Also, because our research is lagging a little bit in the female athlete's face, a lot of the evidence is actually anecdotal and what's worked and what hasn't in different um, environments. And so speaking to these clinicians who've worked for years in this space, but just having some amazing conversations um, and reaching out to those people, most of them want to share their knowledge. And so not being shy about, you know, sending an email or asking for, you know, 10-minute conversation about something and finding those people who are willing to give you your time because there's plenty of people out there. Um, yeah, and there's some great now recently online professional development courses and the Female Athlete Conference is the one that really sticks in my mind as kind of a highlight organised by Dr. Kate Ackerman in Boston. It's a really impressive group and they're collaborating worldwide. As we're wrapping up, the other thing that I'd I'd like to hear from you, your thoughts on communication, particularly working in team sports, you are dealing with athletes who come from, they might live in different countries or at least in different states, and they'll come together to compete and train for a period of time with the national team, and then they'll all go back to wherever they're based to do their training. How does that affect your capacity to build those strong trust relationships and then how do you sort of coordinate the care say if you're trying to implement injury prevention effective injury prevention programs or if you're trying to liaise carefully with someone who might have a long-term injury to make sure that you can keep that managed how does that all work Kate and what have you learned along the way with strategies to make that work best the one thing I'd say in terms of building relationships with athletes is and it's getting more and more I think media coverage Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles, is these are people first. Before they're athletes and before they're kind of in the lights on the TV, they're people first. And I think investing in getting to know them as a person 
what their kind of fears are around, say, a particular injury or their life or how, you know, how the, how they want to operate is really important. And I think as clinicians, there's this fine line you have to draw because I always try and you're not friends with your athletes because that makes it very hard to make really good objective decisions. So you've definitely got to obviously be the clinician. But on the other side, you need to be there, like you need to be their confidant so they can tell you enough so you can actually make sure your, your treatment and they are, you understand enough about their life that you put in put together a rehab or a treatment plan or a, you know injury um, prevention program that they can actually do and um, complete in their in their life circumstance, particularly once they go home. But I think a lot of um, a lot of the lessons I learned initially was take the time to have those conversations spending time with them also when they're not injured and just making sure that you've kind of spent enough time with them to understand kind of their fears. If they've done an ACL in the past, they often have, you know, they're scared that they're going to have to go through a rehab again. So they might've avoided certain things and understanding and working really hard with both them and the strength and conditioning coach and the, and the performance coach, like the skill coach to make sure that you understand holistically what they're trying to do to perform. Athletes aren't as interested in injury risk reduction as we are as physios. They're definitely not, but they're very interested in performance. So I used to tie all my injury risk reduction stuff back to performance. So for example, um, a patella tendinopathy and a fast bowler, the exercises are incredibly repetitive and boring and slow when you're doing, you know, really slow isometric or slow um, free range exercises for a patella tendon. But when they feel that they don't have that pain when they're bowling that is their motivating factor so tying it all back into like how how they're then going to get to training so if you're going to do these exercises in the gym before you go out to bowl you're going to feel 100 when you bowl so let's start getting this pattern so we can do it when we're overseas as well so i think making sure you tie every goal back to a performance goal and you have a lot more wins with your athletes and i didn't always contact them with something for them to do I think you've got to contact people as people and just check in sometimes. And if they're interstate or they're overseas, just saying, how are you? Is everything going okay? And making sure you actually are just checking in as a person first rather than always asking them for something. Because I think otherwise it's like, well, the physio is telling me to do something again or she wants my injury. You know, she wants to know how I'm, I actually just cared. How are they doing as a person first? I think you've got to genuinely be invested in them, them and their performance and recognize that our role as clinicians is really to be in the background and making sure they perform at their best. That authenticity, I think, and athletes can smell that or see that a mile away. Yeah, absolutely. Kate, thanks for sharing your experiences, Tokyo and beyond experiences on JOSPT Insights. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.